not sustainable to assume like one synchronous blockchain will serve the entire web. That's ridiculous. Like you can't assume, it's like assuming like one server will, will serve the entire internet. This episode of Empire is brought to you by Fails Markets, an options platform on Arbitrum and Optimism that gets you exposure to crypto in the simplest way possible. They've made it as easy as simply choosing up or down. You'll hear more about Fails later in the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. We have uh, Mustafa, the co-founder of Celestia, Preston, co-founder of Sovereign Labs. Uh, Preston Mustafa, welcome to Empire, guys. Hello. Good to be Thanks. here. <laughs> Good to have you guys here. Uh, fun, fun time to be doing a conversation on rollups. Uh, there is, for anyone who's been reading uh, John Charbonneau, uh, there's a big, deb- de- big debate this week on uh, basically just what defines a rollup, ignited by the two John Charb pieces. And I think my knowledge has basically, if you've ever seen that chart where it's like, you think you know everything, and then you realize you know literally nothing, and then you slowly build back up from there. I think I'm at the point of realizing I know literally nothing. So I think what would be helpful uh, for me, at least, is like, let's start at the very top before we go deep. And so I think, Preston, I'll throw this first question to you with just like, not even what is a sovereign rollup, but what is a rollup? And then we can go deeper from there. Yeah, okay, this is a great question. Um, so James Presswich is the guy who I think has maybe the best definition here. And his definition is that it's um, it's another, basically it's a virtual blockchain. So the idea is you have some additional state which the main rollup nodes don't agree on. Um, so basically a rollup is some subset of the full nodes of the regular blockchain, the L1, keeping some additional state which the rest of the L1 nodes are not aware of. Um, so really, if you take a step back, the idea is that you're running a new virtual blockchain on top of an existing blockchain. So you're inheriting consensus from some L1, but you're not inheriting their execution rules. Um, so the great thing that it gives you is that you can inherit what people typically call the security of the L1, meaning it's consensus guarantees, um, without having the limitations that are imposed by the need for decentralization on the base layer. Two different types of rollups here. Well, maybe, maybe actually three of kind of the, the two big ones right now are ZK rollups and optimistic rollups. And then re, you know, like you guys have kind of introduced sovereign rollups, but really specifically that's probably tied into the ZK rollups. I don't know how you, how you bucket that, but maybe take us one level deeper and like, what are the two distinctions here? Sure. Yeah. And Mustafa, feel free to jump in here. I think Mustafa is the one who coined the term sovereign rollup. Um, <laughs> but broadly speaking, you've got optimistic and ZK. And that's about sort of technical implementation details of how the rollup uh, state transition is is proven to light clients. So taking one step back, you've got this blockchain, right? So it's a set of rules that has been socially agreed upon um, that you're going to run. And you say, whenever a transaction happens, we're going to say, like, check a signature. And if the signature is valid, then we'll transfer some money from person A to person B. Okay, so you've got these rollups with their, their logical state transition function. Now, anybody who's running a full node just implements those rules, and that's the end of the story for them. As soon as the transaction lands, they execute it, and they know what's going on. The distinction between optimistic and ZK is, okay, let's say that you can't afford to run a full node. So a good example is like you're an end user on a mobile phone, or maybe you're another blockchain that cares about the state of this roll-up chain. How do you find out what the state is? So broadly speaking, there's two ways you can go about doing that. One is that you can just ask somebody, right? So this is an optimistic rollup. Somebody goes on the chain and they say, hey, I promise the state of the rollup currently is X. And I'm willing to guarantee that by putting up some money. 
And if anybody else is able to prove that the state of the world wasn't X, then they get my money. So it's a way to get an economic guarantee or a crypto economic guarantee that the state of the world is correct. All you need is the, the ability for one person to come in and basically fact check them. So as long as there's at least one honest guy who's watching, then they'll want to earn the money. So they'll keep the guy who's attesting to the state honest. So that's an optimistic rollup. The other thing you can do is a ZK rollup, which is just using fancy cryptography to prove that the state is something um, rather than doing this crypto economic game. Um, so that's, that's ZK versus optimistic. That's pretty orthogonal to the question of sovereign versus smart contract rollups. Um, and this distinction is maybe more of a social distinction than a technical distinction. Uh, again, Mustafa, feel free to jump in here. Uh, but broadly speaking, the idea is if you're a smart contract rollup, you've got some enshrined contract on a particular layer one. So a good example is like Arbitrum or Optimism. They have a special contract on the Ethereum base layer. And this contract is responsible for validating the state of the rollup and sort of telling Ethereum about it. And it's very deeply baked into their architecture. Um, so most of the assets on Optimism and Arbitrum are actually bridged from the Ethereum base layer. In a sovereign rollup, the idea is that you don't have some special smart contract. Instead, every end user sort of decides the state of the rollup for themselves. And that means that there's less focus on bridging assets in and more focus on sort of native assets on the rollup. Hmm. I want to double click on this idea of uh, it being a social distinction rather than a technical one. I was reading a blog post on uh, Celestia's site. So Mustafa, maybe I can throw this to you. It says to not enshrine a settlement layer is primarily a social distinction rather than a technical one, which means that there is a social contract between the rollups community that the rollups transaction validity rules are defined by the community rather than an immutable L1 contract. You, you got to break this one down for me. Yeah, so uh, what you quoted there is actually the article uh, that first defined what a sovereign rollup is, and where I first introduced what a sovereign rollup is. Um, and as I, as I said, uh, like what a sovereign rollup is basically a rollup that does not enshrine a settlement layer or, or a bridge. And what does it mean to not enshrine something? And I argue that it's mainly a social distinction, not a technical distinction. Um, which means that if a if you could, if the rollup community agrees that the upgrade process for a rollup is that they will agree they they have a process where they can hard fork the rollup and they agree that it's not the bridge that defines what the state of the rollup should be it's the community or in the, or running the nodes for the rollups that should define what the rollup is and that's kind of like playing into the recent debate. Is the rollup the bridge, or is it the, ch the chain? Hmm. And that's why. That's why. And the fact that I say it's a social distinction, uh, like when I first um, kind of published that post, uh, like Kelvin from Optimism thought it was kind of weird because he thought oh, it's obvious. Like, of course, like you know, of course, uh, the, ro the the node defines the chain, and he he himself sees to some extent that opt the optimism chains can be sovereign rollups. And that kind of really plays into the fact that it is really a social distinction it, and it um, more so than a technical distinction. Am I understanding it correctly in that a sovereign rollup is really technically not that different than a, like your typical ETH rollup, except that there's this social distinction that it's um, 
it's really uh, what you're describing is it's it's about the community that decides on upgrades via forks ra rather than the bridge. Am I yeah. understanding that correctly? Yes, but there is also kind of like what we've been discussing recently, this idea of social sovereignty and technical sovereignty. Um, so like in order to have that social distinction in the first place, you also need some form of technical sovereignty, which is the idea like you need, you need, um, that you can't to, to, to be to, to even have the uh, a concept to, for software to be useful, you need to have the ability for end users to run nodes that follow the rollup chain directly, not just via the L1. Uh, because on the L1, you obviously have a bridge contract between to the rollup, and that bridge contract basically operates as a light node or light client for that rollup. And in many cases, people don't need to run a node for the rollup. They can simply um, run the L1 chain, and the, inside the L1 chain is a light client as a smart contract for the rollup. So you're kind of like implicitly, indirectly running a node for that rollup. And if you do that, it's, it's not what we what I would describe as technical sovereignty. That's what we describe like as a as a smart contract rollup. But on the other hand, uh, if we talk about a sovereign rollup, there needs to be the ability for users to follow the state of the rollup and get rollup block headers not just by following the on-chain smart contract, but actually by by connecting to some peer-to-peer -peer network directly and downloading the blocks and checking for themselves um, directly that the rollup blocks are valid, we, whether it's for optimistic or for fraud proofs or, or, or ZK proofs. And that's what, I, that's what we refer to as technical sovereignty. And that's what sovereign SDK uh, allows for as well. Before we completely lose everyone who's not the like 120 people in this world who really cares about the distinction between rollups, um, why don't we why don't we actually zoom out, zoom out even more? And we, we typically don't do this to, to kick it off, but maybe like let's go even more high level than this and just talk about like your vision, both of your like vision for the world and how crypto will look in maybe three to five years and like why the hell it matters that like, like why, why are we talking about this? And maybe actually this is a good time to plug like Sovereign and, and Celestian, like I think both of what you're building to me, and to me, when I understand both of what you're building, it's not things that are like incredibly imperative to today's crypto world, but will be in, but will be very essential in the future crypto world. So maybe Preston, if I could ask you to first like describe your vision of the world in crypto in like three to five years, and then tie that back into like why this whole conversation about rollups and Sovereign Labs really matters. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be super happy to. Mm -hmm. um, so before we get too deep into this, one thing that's super, super in important to understand is this notion of a trust zone. So broadly speaking, when you have a blockchain, you've got some set of miners or validators, some people who are in charge of defining what data is on that chain. And within one of those trust zones, so for the base chain and for any rollups that are defined in terms of the data on that chain, you, uh, you're able to circumvent some limitations that, would that you would run into if you tried to go across trust zones. Um, so in technical terms, there's this problem called the asynchronous fair exchange problem. That's the problem we're, we're interested in here if, that's, if you want to look into the technical details. But broadly speaking, if you're uh, trying to bridge across different chains, you have this fundamental problem, which is like, let's say you've got tokens on Solana and you want to move them over to Ether, right? Now, what you want to do is you're going to lock them up on Solana and then the Ethereum blockchain or some smart contract over there is going to look at the state root of the Solana chain and it'll say, oh yeah, those tokens have been locked up. So it's safe for me to mint them on the Ethereum chain and then you can use them over there. 
okay, so the technical problem here is that those two things are in different trust zones, which means that if one of them hard forks, or if there's just some problem and the chain rolls back, then maybe that transaction no longer happened. So let's say that Solana somehow rolled back. Um, suddenly you've minted these tokens on Ethereum, but they're no longer locked up on Solana. And so you've just double spent your tokens. Okay, so across trust zones, this is a fundamental problem. There's no way around it. If the chain hard forks or rolls back, then the other chain is just straight out of luck. It's got these copies of the tokens that are not backed by anything anymore. So what that means is that you want to have large trust zones, right? You want a lot of different activities all happening within the same trust zone. So where I see the world going in the long term is that we'll have a few base layers that dominate. So um, maybe three to five is, is a good approximate number, you know, who knows? Uh, but a very small number of base layers with their own validator sets. And then on top of those base layers, you want to be able to do all sorts of different things, right? So think of the internet. Um, imagine if there were only two different programs that you were allowed to run on a computer, right? That would make no sense. What you want instead is you want lots and lots of different computers running lots and lots of different programs that can be deployed in a permissionless way, and then they can all talk to each other. Um, so the technical way we describe that is that you've got synchrony within your local machine. So you can, you know, you can access your hard drive, you can do computation, and then you've got asynchrony when you want to interact with somebody else. Um, so let's say that you want to download a nice uh, cat GIF from Pinterest, right? Your computer is going to make a call over the network and that call might fail, but that means that you're decoupled from Pinterest. So if Pinterest goes down, your computer doesn't stop, right? So I expect blockchains broadly to play out in this exact same way. Um, you'll have lots and lots of different chains doing lots and lots of different things. And they're all their separate little islands, right? They're all just doing their own particular business logic. They're not necessarily even aware of other rollups or other base layers, uh, but they're all on these broadly shared trust zones. And that mm -hmm. kind of gives you the best of all worlds, right? This way it can be totally permissionless to deploy a new chain. So if you need something that's not being offered by a current rollup, you can just make your own in the same way that if you want something that's not available on a current website, you can just go and deploy your own website. Um, but then you have, you have the trust properties inherited from the DA layer. So hmm. again, speaking very broadly, we expect a few DA layers with hundreds or thousands or ideally tens of thousands of rollups all running on top and all able to communicate, but not communicating with each other all of the time. Hmm. Mustafa, how does this align with your vision of the world? Yeah, so we share a very similar vision. Uh, I wanna, like, our vision kind of revolves around how we also saw the web develop. So there's a lot of analogies with how we see blockchains develop, how we saw the early web develop. So like in the, when the web was first created, to create a website, you usually had to have your, have your own physical server. And that's very similar to the early days of Bitcoin. It was like one uh, application per blockchain. If you wanted to create a new application, you had to create a new blockchain. It was Bitcoin, which was the first application, it was money. And then there was other chains like Namecoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, and so on and so forth. There was no ERC20s or anything like that. And then, Ethereum, and then uh, in the early days of the web, you had this idea of shared hosting providers. Like GeoCities is the early one, but you also had like DreamHost, Bluehost, and stuff like that. Uh, and the parallel to that in blockchains is Ethereum. Ethereum came about and said, uh, instead of creating your own chain for every single time, let's just create like a shared blockchain with a shared execution environment, just upload your code and it will run run on the same cha chain. We can share the same computational resources. 
as a very similar, uh, analog um, analogous to the early web where we had shared hosting providers, you upload your code to GeoCities, DreamHost, or whatnot, and your code runs on the same server as like hundreds of other websites who are sharing the same resources. But more recently, um, we realized that that doesn't really scale well and it has very many limitations. Like you're stuck with the same execution environment as that shared host gives you, or you're stuck with the Ethereum virtual machine. Like what if you want to experiment with new execution environments that are more scalable, like, you know, uh, Solana's virtual machine or Move or any other execution environment that supports parallel processing or do class, or like there's people want to create, modify the EVM to add new opcodes that weren't possible before. So then you have, you have, um, so then uh, the idea is like the, the evolution of the shared hosting providers was this idea of virtualization. We had virtual servers, we had virtual machines and the cloud. So it became the case that if you wanted to create and deploy a new application on the web, instead of sharing the same, uh, like operating system or execution environment as everyone else on a shared web host, what you would instead do, you would go to Amazon AWS EC2 or DigitalOcean or any virtual machine provider. And in five seconds, you could deploy your own virtual server. You have your own, so now you, you can have your own execution environment as a virtual server within seconds. So then you had the best of both worlds. You had the, you had the um, flexibility of your own server, but the convenience of using a shared host. And rollups do the exact same thing. That's why they're described as virtual blockchains. You can now, instead of having to create your own chain from scratch using your own consensus or proof of stake network, you can just create a virtual blockchain that inherits um, some um, a pluggable consensus and data layer like Celestia. And that kind of plays into our multi-chain or app-chain thesis where in the future we expect that uh, there'll be millions of app-chains or chains running or shared the layers like Celestia, just like how there's millions of virtual machines all asynchronously talking to each other on the web right now. If I understand both of your visions of the world correctly, you both think that right now we have like DYDX has created their own app chain. You both think that there will be millions of apps who have created their own app chains. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, exactly. Completely, will, yeah. Okay. And will these might be really dumb questions. Will all of these app chains be built on different L2s like the Optimisms and Arbitrums? Or Preston, that is actually what Sovereign Labs is building in that like they will hopefully be built on something like a Sovereign Labs you know, SDK. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's our vision is that most of these chains will need something custom. So the EVM is of course great and it's, it, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to use it. Uh, but it's also very limited in some fundamental ways. Um, so one limitation is that it's extremely unfriendly to parallelism, which puts a limit on how much transaction throughput it can ever do. So if you need a super scalable app, EVM is probably going to be the wrong choice. Um, another big limitation of the EVM is that its transaction model doesn't allow for batching. So think of Uniswap today, right? If you want to send a trade on Uniswap, you are roughly guaranteed to get sandwiched if you don't use like a special MEV protection API, right? Because the EVM itself can't protect you from sandwiching. The only reason for that is that the EVM can't batch trades. So you could trivially build a version of Uniswap, which didn't have sandwich attacks, just by settling trades once per block instead of settling every transaction separately. 
and then everybody would get the same price. Right. So there's no incentive at all to sandwich, right? That would mean suddenly your slippage tolerances could be way lower. You know, um, basically it's just it's just a fundamentally better version of Uniswap. The problem is there's just no way to implement it in the EVM. Um, and so that's going to be broadly the case for any particular choice of VM, right? Every virtual machine has to make different trade-offs and some of them will be good for different applications. But for any particular application, like any particular VM is not the right choice. So you need flexibility and things like, you know, EVM stacks just can't give that to you. In the same way that like it, it doesn't really make sense to um, have one canonical website that everybody can customize a little bit to like run the app on, right? Like, no, you just need to be able to write your own apps and serve them via the web. So that's what Sovereign Labs is trying to provide. Uh, okay. So like when I think about the three core tasks of a blockchain, it is executing transactions, achieving consensus on the transaction ordering, and then the DA layer, right? Like guaranteeing the availability of that transactional data what part of this in a world, okay, let's use Uniswap, for example, Uniswap goes out, they build their own chain. Um, what, what of those three things is happening at like that app chain level? What is happening like one layer below? What is happening still at Ethereum? What is happening here on Celestia? Like maybe Mustafa, you could, you could take this one. Yeah. So are you talking about like a hypothetical example? If like Uniswap wanted to be an app chain rollup, for example? That's right. Yeah, so I guess like DIDX is also quite a similar example because DIDX um, was used StockX, so DIDX itself was a roll-up on Ethereum. But right. the way it would roughly work is like uh, you would you have the execution environment, and the execution execution environment is the roll-up itself. So like if it was a Uniswap roll-up, for example, let's say you would create it in using the Ethereum virtual machine, for example. Um, and that would be that would be an execution environment, um, and that would that's, that that up would post its block data to a, another consensus and DNA layer like Celestia, and and what that does is uh, Celestia would make the rollup blocks, it would give ordering over those rollup blocks to say which ones came first, so that there's objective truth to what the actual transactions are, and it would make them available. The data, the data behind them available so that if there's any fraud proofs, they can be generated, or if there's any misbehavior, it can be challenged with fraud proofs, for example. Hmm. Okay. I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm trying to almost visualize in my head, like you've got basically the data availability, consensus, settlement, and execution in a monolithic blockchain. All of that happens on Ethereum with a roll-up, the DA consensus and settlement happens on Ethereum, but then the execution happens on your own chain. Um, and then with something like a sovereign rollup, the DA and the consensus would happen with Celestia. Tell me if this might all be wrong, but like, I think the DA and consensus would happen with Celestia and then the settlement and execution would happen on your own chain. If it wasn't a sovereign rollup, or even if it was a sovereign rollup, you could also have a different settlement layer. And like, for example, you could be an L3 to an L2. And one of the, one of the advantages of that might be you have um, like a you have a bridging hub. You have access to a bridging hub for trust, for trust memorized bridging. Hmm. But so yeah, when like I think, ideas, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say like the I th like what I think when a lot of people still think app chains, they think Cosmos. But my understanding here now, like getting a better understanding of this, is the Cosmos SDK is great, but the Cosmos SDK is meant to build L ones, which means that you then have to uh, recruit your own validators. You have to get your own set of full nodes, etc. 
with a roll up, you inherit the security of the L1. So like Preston with what you're building with Sovereign, you're meant to build, I think, ZK roll up. So like it just makes it it just makes everything a little easier to get off the ground. I guess that's a question. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Imagine if every time you wanted to deploy a website, like you had to go and build a data center, right? Like, sure, there's lots of people who are interested in building data centers for you, but it's just a pain to actually go out and do it. Um, so just use an existing trust zone. This episode is brought to you by Fails, a new frontier in simple on-chain options. Here's what you do. You choose an asset, a strike price, and the market you want to participate in, and that's it. With its powerful and capital-efficient AMM-based architecture, Fails is able to offer low fees, automated liquidity, and effective utilization of leverage with no funding rate and known payouts. They just launched this new UI. It's super clean. Step one, you choose an asset. Step two, you choose a strike date. Step three, you pick a market and choose the USD amount. Getting exposure to crypto assets price action has never been easier because of fails. So here's what you got to do. You got to go to failsmarket.io, T-H-A-L-E-S market.io, failsmarket.io. They're on Arbitrum and Optimism. Go play around. Choose a crypto asset, choose a strike date, pick a market, choose the USD amount. Bada bing, bada boom. Check out Thales Market. Let's, okay, good high level framing. Let's get back into the weeds a little bit. Um, I think maybe the first place to talk about is guarantees. Um, I don't know who to ask this question to, but like what guarantees are different with a roll up where you don't have this baked in, right? Or you don't have like this enshrined smart contract uh, versus like an L1 where you actually have the enshrined smart contracts. Does that, I don't know who to ask that question to, but curious about, curious about the guarantees here. I mean, in theory, you, sh you should get the same guarantees. Uh, like, interestingly, um, like Celestia used to be called Lazy Ledger. And, it, it's called, and the reason why it was called Lazy Ledger is because, like, it, um, it's, it, it trips back a layer one to the, only the core components that a layer one needs to do to get all the guarantees that blockchain provides, which is, you know, uh, provide a ordering over some set of data so that nodes can get what the final state of application is. So it's like, as long as you have ordering and consensus, add ordering and data availability over some data, you get the exact same guarantees that any other chain provides. It's just mm -hmm. that it's decoupled. Maybe tell me about like the, the end benefit here uh, to, to the user. Some, like, I'm assuming there's some sort of benefit like cheaper fees or faster confirmations if you're, if you're completely sovereign, but maybe tell me about like the why behind that and, and if I'm right about like that being the end benefit to the user, if you are completely sovereign. Yeah. So um, going back to that conversation we had earlier, this is again, primarily like a social distinction, not a technical distinction. Mm. Really the whole concept of a settlement layer is not fundamental in any way. So the reason we have this concept of settlement is a historical accident where the first rollups were on Ethereum and people were thinking of them as like a way to do more execution of Ethereum things on a second layer, right? So then the idea is like, okay, if the second layer is really part of Ethereum, it has to settle to Ethereum. But fundamentally, like there's there's nothing about settlement layers baked into rollups. So a rollup is just a blockchain of its own. You can follow the rules of that blockchain completely independent from any other chain. Um, and so you could imagine like having an L3, which has its data on L1, and then it has quote settlement to two different L2s. 
And there's no contradiction in terms there, right? The settlement layer is not a fundamental part. Really what a settlement layer is like, it's a social contract about, we think this chain is sort of important to the rollup in some way. So Ethereum is sort of important to Optimism and Arbitrum because pretty much all the assets from Optimism and Arbitrum are bridged over from the ETH base layer. Um, but really like a settlement layer isn't really a thing. It's just a chain that you bridge to. Yeah, so then the question that you're asking is really like, what are the trade-offs involved in bridging from a rollup? And the answers there are, are fairly, you know, implementation de dependent, but um, broadly speaking, like running a bridge smart contract is a bit expensive. Um, and so especially if you're a smart contract rollup, which has to sort of by social contract has to be updating this bridge frequently, then that can get quite expensive for end users. So let me be very concrete here. Like imagine that you are a Starkware, StarkX exchange or something. Your social contract is that you're supposed to settle your trades onto Ethereum, which means that you have to be posting ZK snarks onto Ethereum sort of as frequently as you can afford to. But verifying snarks on chain is very, very expensive. And so that translates into higher fees for end users. So if you remove this social contract, if you say, no, the rollup is sovereign on its own, and then we'll bridge back to Ethereum based on supply and demand, you can translate that into lower fees. So the way this works is you create your ZK snark and you do that completely off chain on your, you know, on your own peer to peer network. And you can send that snark to light clients right away. So end users can get finality in the minimum amount of time that it takes to generate a snark, which is usually like a couple of minutes. Hmm. Um, and then when you want to bridge, you can do that on the longer time frame that Ethereum forces you to use because of how expensive verifying snarks are. So I think concretely on Ethereum today, like Starkware rollups settle about every eight hours or so. Um, the reason for that is just gas pricing, right? It doesn't take Starkware eight hours to make the snark. It's just that it's too expensive to verify. So if you separate those two components out, then you can reduce the time to finality for end users. Um, but you can still have your bridge contract, your trust minimized bridge with Ethereum. So really, this is always oh, a product of sort of a bad mental model coming from the history of rollups, right? Like settlement Wait, layer just, is not an inherent part of a roll. Just to make sure I fully understand that one of one of those pieces, Preston, the Z, is that and is that because ZK, like Starkware, for example, Z, is that because ZKs are so um, like cost intensive? Basically, they consume so much gas that this is so like if you're Starkware or StarkX or whatever, you 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 won't actually post to the block. You won't actually. Uh, post to the blockchain and, and like you know every minute or every 10 minutes because that would be like far too expensive so you'll do it every five hours or every 10 hours or something like that and that becomes a problem if i'm a user because if i'm looking at the chain i don't actually see my transaction for maybe even several hours after it's posted and a, and a sovereign rollup would fix that is that correct yeah exactly exactly okay uh, so to be clear Starkware could do the same thing right they could make their proofs and they could send them to users directly um, the trouble with Starkware is that they don't post their transaction data on chain. Uh, they only post like state diffs, if I recall correctly. And so because the data is not settled on L1 until they post their proof, you really don't get finality. But if Starkware hmm. were to post their transactions on chain, then they could do this same trick where they make their proofs off chain and send them to users and then just you know, settle or bridge every few hours. So Mustafa, tell me about your prediction for just, I guess, what happens with optimistic rollups here then, because it seems like uh, with optimi optimistic rollups, you need the pr the fraud proofs, and with zk, you don't. So it seems like optimistic rollups eventually get run over. Well, in theory, uh, like um, theoretically, like zk rollups 
kind of like have better properties in optimistic rollups in the sense that you don't have to wait, you don't have to wait for forward proofs. But I guess the main reason why people are using optimistic rollups right now um, is simply due to the high proving costs of proving certain computations in ZK rollups. Like for example, if you want to create something in the EVM, creating a ZK EVM is very expensive. But like hopefully, uh, like I'm like I'm kind of agnostic. I like I like both optimistic and ZK rollups. I'm very neutral. And like, uh, but my hope is like of, of, for ZK rollups, of course, to hopefully it will become more and more efficient in the future when it comes to proving these computations. Mustafa, you were talking earlier, I guess you both were about like comparisons and analogies to the web. When you think about what you're building at Celestia, are there comparisons for the smooth brain folks like me, like comparisons to early web or AWS or cloud, like like HTTP, like any analogies that you can pull out of this, of, of what maybe that you both are building uh, to kind of help me visualize and get a, get a better understanding of, of, of really what we're doing here? Yeah, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, I think the best analogy is just like how the cloud lets you deploy virtual servers without having to maintain your own physical infrastructure. Rollups allow you to deploy your own virtual blockchains without having to maintain your own blockchain consensus infrastructure or, the, or maintain your own layer one network. Uh, I think I think that's the kind of like the best analogy um, mm. I could effectively find. And also yeah. another, another analogy, like when it comes to modularizing the stack, uh, like there's this thing called like the, the, the OSI stack, which is like computers today, they're built in a very modular way. Like you have like the hardware layer, we have the networking layer, we have the application layer and so on and so forth. And I think the key takeaway is like, as any tech technology stack matures, it, it starts to mature by modularizing. So like imagine like we have TCP IP, for example, and that's like on the network layer, uh, like it's a protocol for computers to communicate with. And on top of that, we have HTTP, which is how websites work. But like, imagine we had to imagine if we had to uh, kind of like create a whole new networking layer every time you wanted to create a, create a new kind of like way to use the internet. Like imagine to create the web or like to create HTTP. Imagine, so for example, like you have HTTP and HTTPS and HTTPS is like a more secure version of HTTP that uses encryption. But like imagine, imagine if to, in order to uh, deploy HTTPS, we had to modify the entire networking layer of the internet and modify the actual routers and the actual like Wi-Fi chips and everything like that. Like it would take ages. And that, that's exactly like what we've been doing with IPv6 versus IPv4. Like we're, we're running out of IP addresses and there's IPv6, which, in, which um, increases the number of IP addresses. And that's basically taking like two decades to get mass adoption because you have to modify like every Wi-Fi chip, every, like all the hardware, all the routers. And so to say, you can use the same analogy for like blockchains. Imagine if you had to, every time you have to create and modify your execution environment in some way that like you want to experiment with Add a new opcode to the EVM. Imagine if you had to create a whole new layer one just to experiment with a new execution environment. Like it, would, it would be insane. And that's basically how we've been operating over the past 10 years. Uh, like we've been stuck in this like loop, what I described of like every, um, this monolithic layer one loop. Like every cycle, there's this new layer ones that incrementally approve up on the old layer ones. Like on the first cycle, you know, 2015, 16, we had Ethereum. And the next cycle, we had things like EOS, uh, 
Nem, I think, and then like a bunch of others. Cardano. In the previous cycle, we had Solana, uh, Avalanche, and now we have Sui and Aptos. So it's like, when does it end? Like we can't. It's like it's not sustainable. Like the, <laughs> the industry needs to mature a little bit. Like we can't have like this like an, the constant new day ones that just copy all the applications, the previous day ones, the same NFT ecosystems, the same application, exactly the same applications. The only mm-hmm. selling point is like it's a new day one, just yeah. just for incremental improvement. So you, okay, so if you're looking at this OSI stack, you've got like you've got seven layers of the OSI stack, right? And like down here, yeah. you've got like the fiber and the wireless, and then you've got the Ethernet, TCP/IP. Yeah. APIs and sockets, like SSL, the presentation syntax layer, and then you've got the end user layer, like the application, like HTTPS and things like that. Um, yeah. What you are saying is that what we're trying to do in like in in most of crypto and with Ethereum specifically right now is when there is a change that should happen at it just at the HTTP level, like the end user, the application level level. We have to go all the way down sometimes to the like the packet level or the frame level and like modify yeah. Ethernet like modify tcp ip when really we should just be sitting up here modifying the syntax of the end user layer exactly yeah so what's the what's the bottom so like in the osi stack to keep this analogy running i I might uh, run it out too far here but like the physical and the data layer like and the even the network layer like really don't change like tcp ip like ethernet like the wireless cables like no one's messing with those things these days i at least that's my understanding um, so your understanding here would be that like Ethereum, like what, what's the, what's the base of that layer? Like, is it, is it going to be Ethereum? Are there like several, several of these L1s that will win? What, what do you guys both think here? I mean, yeah, I mean, it doesn't map perfectly to the OSI stack because ultimately it's analogy, but like the way I view the stacks in a blockchain layer is I, I define layer zero as social consensus. That's where it all starts. Uh, like you have to, for, for layer one to have meaning, you need layer zero social consensus to agree what the rules of the layer one is. And I see the layer one as the kind of data and consensus layer. And then layer two is the execution layer. And then on the layer two, on the execution layer, on the layer two execution layer, you can have applications on top of it, which is like the layer above. Or you wouldn't describe them as layer threes, but I would describe them as, as, as layer above. You can like if you have an EVM hmm. smart contract roll up on layer two, you can deploy you can deploy applications on top of it. Preston, would you agree with Mustafa on most of this? Yeah, I think Mustafa and I broadly agree on this thing. Um, you know, in crypto, we like to make distinctions of like L1, L2, and then now people are saying like L1.5, um, <laughs> all of these things, right? Like a lot of this is sort of. It's, it's stuff that's fun to debate over, but not super like inherently meaningful. Um, I think the, the point that Mustafa made that I agree most strongly with is that social consensus is like layer zero, like the most fundamental thing. And everything on top of social consensus is a bit malleable. Um, and then I also really like his point of L1 being like the trust zone. So the validator yeah. set, uh, um, which is sort of where like computers and the social consensus interact. And then on top of that, you've got freedom and you can stack things as high as you want to go. And it, it doesn't really matter, right? You're, you're all within the same trust zone if you're sharing L0 and, and L1. When does, so both, both of you share this, this app chain thesis belief. When does all of this become a need, not a, not a want? Is it in the next potential bull, bull cycle where there's just a crazy amount of demand? And like, what, yeah, when, when does all of this become a need, not a want? 
I think pretty much like yesterday when uh, you know Bitcoin and Ethereum fees, every single bull market L1 fees skyrocket. And it's like, okay, we're not, every single bull market is like, okay, we have, crypto is not ready for mass adoption. Um, so I think ultimately the ultimate lead is we need scaling. And that's why Ethereum is now doing a roll-up centric roadmap. Um, so like scaling is obviously one of the one of the, the most important reason why we need um, this, like this multi-chain or up-chain thesis. Because uh, I think everyone, well, not everyone, like Solana isn't on the same page that it's not sustainable to assume like one synchronous blockchain will serve the entire web. That's ridiculous. Like you can't assume, it's like assuming like one server will, assume, will serve the entire internet. Uh, but other than that, I think we need also need it. It's very important to break. It's very important to have up, to um, enable app chains to break out of this um, layer one loop I described. But every time we want to make it incremental improvement to execution environment, uh, we launch a new layer one, uh, and it's not sustainable. Uh, like it's not economically sustainable. At some point, like these layer ones are not going to be funded anymore, um, and so that's why I think it's also very important to have rollups. There's one more really interesting point here, which is that you frame this in terms of a bull market, right? Like when the next bull market comes, we're gonna need all these app chains. I think that framing is very much indicative of the state of crypto. Right now you're sharing this single computer between the entire world. And so the only thing you can run in, on that computer is like the very highest value thing that you can think of. So if there was only one mainframe in the world, we would probably use that mainframe like to run NASDAQ or something, right? We would use it for something incredibly high value. Uh, but nobody wants to live in a world where like nobody has computers except for NASDAQ, right? So what we're building out is the infrastructure where suddenly everybody can have a computer at home. And it's too early to say exactly what people are gonna do with those computers. Like people didn't necessarily predict Friendster and MySpace and Facebook and then TikTok and Instagram, right? But it's obvious from even where we're standing today that like there are a ton of applications for useful blockchains. Um, in the same way that there are a ton of applications for home computers, even if you don't know quite what they are yet. And so I think, you know, 10 years from now, we'll look back and we'll think it's kind of ridiculous that like activity was so tied to prices. Right? That's just an artifact of the fact that mm. everything on chain is financial right now because chains can't support anything non-financial. Um, so we're trying to build out that layer. And then, you know, I think we'll see a lot of exciting things. You'll probably see gaming and social as early applications. Um, but broadly speaking, the reason we need app chains is not just to scale finances, it's to enable interesting use cases that are just not possible with the limitations of blockchains today. Hmm. Preston, Mustafa, are, are there anything, any things that stand out that you guys might disagree on? Well, I can't think of any right now, but I think we've had various disagreements about how we serialize, serialize certain data structures <laughs> in like certain protocols. But I don't think there's anything like super fundamental. I think I think one thing that we disagree slightly on is where we see optimistic rollups fitting in in the future. Um, so we're both broadly fans of zk and optimistic, but I'm I'm more bearish, I think, on optimistic rollups in the long term than Mustafa is. Um, so I'll tell you sort of why, and then Mustafa feel free to push back. But the reason I'm a little bit bearish on optimistic rollups is that I think we have this shared vision of a future where you have tons and tons of different app chains and they're not necessarily all aware of each other. So the thing with optimistic rollups is that they have a very weak assumption, right? They have an assumption that there's at least one honest person or person watching the rollup. Okay, but in a future where there's a million different rollups, maybe that assumption doesn't hold up anymore. 
because you might have some like, you know, like I have a personal website that's a little draft that's available on a corner of the internet, but I don't think anybody has ever gone there via Google, right? Like I don't think anybody but me has ever seen this website. Um, and so, but if your infrastructure assumes that like there's always going to be an honest person, so it's always safe to bridge back and forth with any optimistic role, that assumption might break in the future when we have, you know, when blockchains are where the internet is today. Um, so for that reason, I'm really bullish on ZK just because it gives you complete firm trust um, that nothing can ever go wrong. And so you can build simpler and more robust systems. Now, in the short term, I think Optimistic has a great future because we're, you know, a decade away from from where we see this ending up. Um, but I think that's one area where maybe we disagree slightly. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think ultimately it depends on the scale you're talking about. Like I would say uh, like using, having optimistic rollout app chains definitely allows you to get a lot more chains securely than like using your own layer, layer one validator set as you have with Cosmos right now. Because of course, like having a honest minority assumption scales better than having an honest majority assumption. But of course, having a no uh, a no honesty assumption and just verifying a proof directly uh, scales even better. <clears throat> Sorry, even better. But yeah, I'm like I'm bullish both on optimistic and zk rollups. Um, and I think you know I think ultimately for zk rollups, it's just a matter of reducing the proving costs. And it also kind of like pays a lot into the idea or the recent discussion of like what optimism saying, which is like the rollup is not the bridge. So for like, for example, like optimism actually wants to also ZK prove their role up. Like you can have multiple bridges. One of them is optimistic bridge and another of them is like a ZK bridge. You can even have a pessimistic role up that doesn't have either fraud proofs or optimistic or, or, or validity proofs. You just have to run a full node. And interestingly, that's actually uh, like how uh, like people built application, applications on Bitcoin before Ethereum even existed. So like you could say Tether itself is a, a pessimistic role up that uses Bitcoin. Uh, because it uses Bitcoin as, as a data layer. Hmm. That's interesting. What is the, uh, in, in this world that you both envision, where does the value accrue here? And maybe we can continue moving forward with the, with the Uniswap example here. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, my thesis is that there will be um, fewer DNA layers than there are execution layers, and there'll be fewer execution layers than there are application layers. And my thesis is that the total value of the application layers will be greater than the total value of layers below it. So for example, like the total value of the execution layers will be greater than the total value of the DA layers. But um, the value of the biggest DA layer will be bigger, will be potentially be bigger than the value of the biggest application, uh, for example, simply because, of the, because there's less DA layers than application layers on average, uh, potentially. Uh, so it's kind of like similar to like how AWS provides infrastructure, but like the, the, the value of AWS is much larger than uh, the average application built on, built on AWS. But once you take all applications built on AWS on aggregate, they're probably greater in value uh, than the value of AWS itself. That's kind of, that's kind of like my, my theory. Um, but I'm not like strongly wedded to it. Preston, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable thesis there. Um, you know, so one interesting thing to think about is exactly this, where does the value accrue? I think you generally accrue value um, whenever there's scarcity, 
right? So if you're providing something that not many other people can provide, then you can accrue value from that. So DA layers will accrue value because being on a particular DA layer makes you part of the same trust zone, which means that you can bridge with other rollups in a trust minimized way. So for that reason, DA layers have sort of natural network effects, um, which means you should expect them to accrue value. You'll also see value accrual on app chains specifically, which are popular because uh, any popular app is going to have more demand than it can possibly supply because there are limits to how much you can ZK prove, how much you can run on a single computer. Um, and fundamentally, like the idea of a single chain is that it needs to be able to run on one individual full node. We don't currently have a good robust way of, of you know, mapping a single machine to a bunch of computers. So the peak throughput of an app is the peak throughput of a single laptop, basically, which means that any app is always going to have, you know, basically a few market emerge because more people want to interact with it than it can support. Um, so this is actually a great reason why people should build app chains. If you're a token on Ethereum today, like if you're a popular app, you can launch like a governance token, but all of the fee revenue from your app accrues to the Ethereum validators. And the only way to make your token valuable is like, Either you have some, you know, like social pump or something, right? Which can happen. Um, or you have to like try to try to wrangle some innovative way to like steal away the gas freeze from Ethereum and make them accrue to your rollup token. But if you launch as an app chain, then like it just happens. You you immediately start accruing the value of your app to your app token. So it's a much nicer, much more natural way to align communities um, and to reward the people who are actually creating value. So like, you know, Uniswap is responsible for something like 80% of the fees on Ethereum today. And the uni token accumulates basically none of that, right? Until they enable the fee switch, it does accumulate none of that. And even then it will only, you know, accumulate a small amount because much of Uniswap is actually happening at the gas layer. Um, mm. So there was a bit of a tangent, but broadly speaking, we expect DA layers and then application tokens to accrue pretty much all of the value. Huh. That's interesting. I because I was trying before this recording, I was trying to think of both of your business models, and I wasn't fully sure. I was trying to think of the business models and the moat, and I guess maybe I'll turn that into a question for Mustafa, which is like, how hard is it for an L two or an L three once they've they're using Celestia as the data as the DA layer? Like, how how tough is it to for one for an L three to move from one DA layer to another? Um, and maybe there's a well, similar, both us, yeah yeah. Go ahead, I go mean, ahead. We we want it to be as easy as possible, even though that might seem contradictory to you know our goals. Uh, and like we, uh, like we want to see like common DA interfaces, um, kind of like being developed in the industry. So for example, like we we've even contributed like a modular DA interface to the op stack, because uh, our goal, like the celestia only makes sense in a world where there is a modular blockchain stack, and to um, kind of like get to that, we actually need to need to make it possible to replace the DA layer. Because I don't think anyone wants to build in a walled garden. I don't think anyone wants to build an application on a specific piece of infrastructure without knowing that they have the flexibility to move somewhere else if they wanted to, and without doing a lot of work. Um, and I think that that's a major advantage of a modular stack. Like, if we create these common interfaces, then developers can uh, have like a lot more flexibility and freedom and confidence if they choose a particular DA layer, execution layer, uh, they know because they're using common interfaces, they can switch if in the future if they wanted to. And they're not like building in a walled garden and stuck to a particular uh, module. Yeah. 
And do you, when, when you, when you guys, I'm assuming you guys have done a bunch of like user conversations and customer conversations. Like when you talk to those folks, when you talk to potential apps, uh, apps who might go build their own, their own L3, is there any conversation about like, Hey, we, we might actually just run our own DA layer or we might just like, we might just build this in in-house basically. Is that a conversation or they all like this idea of outsourcing it? Uh, they generally all like uh, the idea of outsourcing it. Outsourcing it. Uh, I think some rollups have like, uh, like have like I know like zk sync for example has zk wants to develop zk pusher, uh, but like very like it really uh, um, kind of like comes to fruition at least to the same extent that we're building like we're building a decentralized data layer. So for example, like Arbitrum has any trust, uh, but that's like a like a centralized data availability committee. Uh, Starkware has something similar, uh, like a centralized data availability committee. And like, we've been actually like talking to Starkware projects and we're working, we're trying to work with Starkware to kind of like make it possible to deploy Starkware rollups or StarkX rollups using Celestia as the layer. Because when we've talked to these StarkX rollups, um, they don't like the idea of having a centralized data availability committee that's being provided by default. And so like, if you want to do things properly and have a decentralized data layer, you can't just like wake up and decide to do it. Like it's actually very, very difficult because you have decentralized, you need to have um, decentralized validator set, but also you need to be credibly neutral. Uh, like if, especially for application specific rollup, um, they prefer building on a, on a credibly neutral data layer. Like let's say like uh, it, Polygon had its own data layer. Like it's unlikely, for example, like, Arbitrum, we want to use Polygon, Polygon Avail. And maybe that's what part of the reason why Avail kind of spat, uh, spun out from Polygon to its own independent project. So it can be more credibly neutral. Nice. Preston, let me just ask you then. Um, I, want, I want to actually just learn a little more about this announcement. So like until now, it's been very tough for a developer to deploy their own ZK rollup. Um, you guys just launched this, uh, this SDK to do this. Is this something that folks can use today? Is this something that's like, here, but coming soon. T t tell me about the SDK that you guys just launched. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Sovereign, broadly speaking, is building a toolkit for building rollups. So we were talking about this analogy of like the OSI stack earlier. Imagine that every time you wanted to launch a new web app, you had to like build your own HTTP server, and then you had to like write your actual application logic in assembly by hand. That's basically where we are with rollups today. Like every single rollup team has their own full node implementation and they've got a full-time set of engineers who are just building this full node. And then on top of that, they've got like PhD cryptographers who are handwriting circuits to like very, in a very specialized way um, to encode the application logic of the ZK rollup. And that's just never going to be sustainable or scalable, right? So what Sovereign is doing is we're building a toolkit where you get your full node implementation totally for free. And you can write your business logic in a normal programming language that lots and lots of developers um, know how to write. And then we generate all of the snark machinery for you. Uh, so suddenly, instead of having to like recruit a whole team of people, you can launch your own rollup in just a few hundred lines of code. Um, so we have demos of this today. Now we just launched our alpha. And the alpha is basically like, hey, for the first time, Sovereign has enough features that you could actually use it to build an application with. Um, the alpha is definitely an alpha release. Like there are security problems that we know of. Um, there's lots of performance improvements that are coming down the pipeline. But this means basically like for the first time you can deploy a rollup on Celestia 
with just a couple of lines of code and you can fully customize its behavior. Like you can use accounts, you can use UTXOs. Um, if you want to deploy a, you know, a full virtual machine, you can do that. If you want to have an app specific role, you can do that. So that's our alpha release. Um, it's the first time that Sovereign has enough features that like it actually runs and you can use it. Um, and we're headed towards beta, which will be when it's like, you know, we've, we've done some audits We're we're very confident that it's reliable and secure um, and you nice. can use it to build apps. It's just not quite fully feature complete. And then we'll release a full version after that. Nice. That's exciting. And you guys are working with Mustafa. Yeah. On the, on, and Celestia on the data available, uh, the DA layer. Yeah. So the sovereign is, is pretty interesting in that it's fully generic over basically every component. So you can plug in different DA layers, you can plug in uh, different ZK snark systems. Um, but Celestia is one of the leaders in the DA space. Um, and so we have been, uh, we use them for our demos. Uh, we've also got a partnership with Avail, the formerly Polygon Avail, um, and we're building some demos with them as well right now. But yeah, Celestia, most of our design thinking was, was initially based around Celestia because it's such an interesting environment to program for, right? Because there is no smart contracting layer, it forces you to think very, um, very robustly about exactly what capabilities your rollup needs from its underlying DHA. So Celestia was our first integration and is where our demos run today. Um, and we also expect it to be a great place to run in the long term. Nice. Mustafa, anything coming from you guys this year that we should be uh, on the lookout for? Absolutely. We have mainnet coming this year. Uh, it's going to be a culmination of four years of effort since the Lazy Ledger white paper was first created in 2019. Um, so yeah, stay tuned for, stay tuned for that. Amazing. Exciting. All right. Cool guys. Well, Preston, Mustafa, I will admit some of this was a little over my head, but I definitely learned a lot and yeah, appreciate, uh, appreciate you guys coming on. Definitely gave me a better understanding of, uh, what you guys are both building, but also just the, the app chain thesis roll-ups, L3s in general. So yeah, really appreciate the time. Likewise.